picked a great week to come because we're kicking off a brand new series. It's always good to visit on a week where we start a brand new series because you're jumping right in at the beginning here. Uh, over the next three weeks, we're embarking upon this series that we're calling the Bad Boys of Easter. Now, I thought the music we should have had like was Bad Boys, Bad Boys, you know that? <laughs> But our creative team felt like that was more dramatic and powerful, so we went with that one. But um, this idea, okay, so as we lead up to Easter, we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have a look at three significant characters that featured in the Easter story? These are people that you may be familiar with. Maybe you recognize the name, but you're not really sure who they were or exactly what it was that they did. But, but three individuals that sadly will forever be known as, as the bad boys of Easter, because they actually came face to face with Jesus. They had an encounter with Jesus in those weeks leading up to um, the end of his life. What we celebrate here every, uh, every year is the, is the greatest celebration for us as a church, for followers of Jesus across this planet, is Easter. Because it's when we celebrate the fact that Jesus not only died, but he rose again. And everything, all of us here this morning that have a, a relationship with Jesus, it all comes out of that sacrifice that he made for us. So Easter for us is a big deal. And we're going to look at the lives of these three people who leading up to that very first Easter when Jesus himself was, was crucified, when he rose again. These three people that interacted with Jesus, they had a chance to, to, to surrender to him, to have a relationship with him, but they chose to resist instead. And because they resisted Jesus, they will now forevermore be known as the bad boys of Easter. And it's a funny thing, isn't it, the idea of resisting Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're just kind of checking things out. Uh, maybe you are uh, visiting. Maybe you were dragged along and had no choice. But for whatever reason, you're here this morning. You're, you're still kind of thinking this through. And one of the questions you've got as you've looked at us followers of Jesus from afar, as you've kind of looked at those who have a relationship with Christ, you've, you've kind of wondered, why is it, why is it that for those of you who have a relationship with God, so often you choose to resist God? You've given your lives to him, you've surrendered to him, and yet still we see this evidence that sometimes you kind of resist him. Because it's true, isn't it? If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, we do that, don't we? Hands up if you've ever, at any point in your life and your following of Jesus, you've kind of pushed back on God a little bit. You've resisted him. Anyone? Come on, we're in church here. You can't lie. Okay, good. Well done. Well done. There's, there's a few of us here this morning. There have come times in, the, in our lives where we've kind of just pushed back a little bit. In fact, maybe some of you are in the middle of that right now. Some of you are fighting an internal battle right now. There's a little bit of pushback going on between you and God right now. Because you know, as a follower, you should forgive. But man, it's hard to forgive. You know that you should make things right in that relationship. There's something you need to do. But you know that it's, it, it's going to be tough. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you're in a relationship that you know isn't a healthy relationship. And in your relationship with God, you can feel him kind of nudging your heart right now that you need to do something about that. But you just love this relationship. You know it's not right, but there's just something fascinating, something somewhat addicting about it. You know you shouldn't go there, but, but you do. You know you shouldn't spend your money that way, but, but you do. You know this, you know that, but you resist. And we resist, don't we? So many times we, we kind of come face to face with God and we push back a little bit. And you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. You're like, why would they do that? Well, let's be honest. We all do it to a certain extent, don't we? We all push back on the rules a little bit. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, I know that you've gone the wrong way down the carpool lane at school. 
Come on, some of you, and you knew it, didn't you? You knew as you were like pulling around and cutting in that you shouldn't have been doing that. Some of you, your Book It coupons expired ages ago and you're still cashing them in, aren't you? You're just hoping she doesn't turn it over because it's got 2015 on the back. But it works this week, it did work. So um, <laughs> the truth is that many times, it's not that we do it unbeknownst. We, we do these things and we know deep down that maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And as followers of Jesus, very often that comes out of a relationship with God. Because the truth is, being a follower of Jesus is not easy. Following him is hard. In fact, actually becoming a follower of Jesus is the easiest thing you can ever do. It literally is a step of faith. It's acknowledging saying, God, I recognize that you are the creator of this universe, that you sent Jesus to die for me. That my confession of the fact that I cannot do this on my own, in my own strength, I can't make it through life on my own. I need your help. Forgive me, God, for the things I've done wrong and help me live my life following you. That, that's how easy it is to become a follower of Jesus. It's very easy to become a follower of Jesus. What's difficult is living the life because there is a cost to following Jesus. And it's difficult sometimes. It's, it's, it's hard. See, we're called upon to, to follow in our heart and our conscience a God that we've never seen. It's by faith to follow literature that's thousands of years old. And, and while many of us believe this is true and a great way to live, it's very hard sometimes to just give God that blank check of our lives and say, God, have your way. So you'd think, wouldn't you, that people who lived in the life of Jesus, people who lived and actually met Jesus face to face, they must have had it so much easier. But you know what? There were people who encountered Jesus, who saw the miracles he performed, who heard his teaching, and like you and me, still chose to push back, still chose to resist Jesus. And we're going to look at three of those people over these next three weeks. So this morning, we're going to start by looking at a man by the name of Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas. Now, some of you are like, I have never heard of him. Well, you are going to know all about him by the end of this morning. In fact, if you gave in the offering this morning, you are going to get your money's worth because you are really going to get to hear all about this. You're going to leave feeling like you're better educated. You're like, man, I never knew that about this guy. And I feel like I'm a bit better of a Christian now because I know who Caiaphas is. And if I get asked that in a quiz one day, I'm going to know the answer. We're going to look at the life of this man, Joseph Caiaphas. He was the Jewish high priest at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. We're going to find out that he had a very big role in the death of Jesus. So, buckle up, here we go. Let's tell you all about who this guy Caiaphas was. And the reason we're going to look at him isn't just a history lesson this morning. It's not just to discover who he was and what he did. It's to realize that, you know what, there are some things that he did. While we can look here from history back and think, man, how could he have done that? We can actually think, man, I do that sometimes. I can see that there's a little bit of Caiaphas in me. And I hope over the next three weeks as we look at these bad boys of Easter, as some of those attributes intersect with, with attributes in our lives, it'll cause us to think, I don't want to be that person. I want to live differently. So Caiaphas, he was appointed the high priest by the Roman governor. The, the Romans were in charge in that time, but you had Jerusalem that was full of Israelites, full of Jewish people. So, so Rome appointed this, this high priest, and he was like the liaison between the Romans and the Jewish people. It was a very important position. It was a position of wealth and power and influence. And Caiaphas, he was good at it. 
He was a negotiator. He was a, a very political person. He actually came from a very powerful family. There had been Caiaphas people, people from the family of Caiaphas, standing as high priest for 40 years now. His brother-in-laws, his father-in-laws, many of them had held that position. This was a dynasty. Dynasty? Dynasty? What do we say? Dynasty? It was like lots of people with the same last name. This was the Rothschilds, the Waltons, the, the Rockefellers, the Kardashians. These, these were some big, like Caiaphas, he was like a big name. And with that name came power and influence, but also, and you may not have known this, came wealth, incredible wealth. You see, at that time, every Israelite, every Jewish person was required to pay what was known as temple tax. And this essentially went to Caiaphas to manage the temple. But there were millions of Jews all over the world that would send their temple tax to Jerusalem. So Caiaphas had access to all of this money and all of this power. In fact, the Romans were so afraid of it that they kept trying to change the laws because all this power and all this wealth with one person terrified them. So Caiaphas, he was sitting pretty. He was enjoying wealth and power and influence until this carpenter turned rabbi from Nazareth comes along. And when Jesus showed up, the problem was that Caiaphas, he had all this power and he had all this wealth and he had all this influence, but there was one thing he didn't have. There was one thing that he didn't have that Jesus did have. Do you know what that was? It was the crowds of people. Crowds of people followed Jesus wherever he went. You know, there were a lot of people that day taught, teaching different things, some teaching crazy things, but the truth is that not all of them were drawing crowds. Jesus was drawing thousands of people. Do you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Some say that it was literally 5,000 people. Others say, well, it was just the men they were counting, so there was probably more than 5,000. Others say that it was kind of hyperbole, you know, that there were just like thousands of people, and really it was probably close to 2,000. But the reality was there was a crowd. There was a lot of people following Jesus at that time. And you know who didn't draw crowds? Caiaphas. Now, don't get me wrong, thousands of people came to the temple on a regular basis, but it was because of Jewish festivals. They weren't there to see Caiaphas. They were there to, to do the sacrifices, to do their worship. And Caiaphas didn't like this. Caiaphas didn't like the popularity that Jesus had. Caiaphas didn't like the crowds because Caiaphas knew that with crowds came, came problems. Crowds can bring uprisings and crowds can bring division. And on top of that, when Jesus was with these crowds, not only was he teaching a lot, he was letting people know exactly what he thought about Caiaphas and the religious leaders of the time. You can read about it. Matthew tells us that at one time Jesus was addressing the religious rulers and he says to them in Matthew 23, 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? So not only are there crowds following Jesus, but Jesus is telling these crowds of people what he thinks of the, the crooked religious leaders of the day. In fact, when the religious leaders used to approach Jesus, there was a time when he, he turned over everything in the temple. When they came to him, they said, they didn't ask, what are you doing? No, they actually asked, who do you think you are? Because they knew that this Jesus had authority. They knew that there was something serious about this man who claims to be the Messiah. 
So this tension builds and builds, and the crowds are growing and growing, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're trying to trip up Jesus and trap him in his words and, and cause him to, to go against the law of Moses or maybe to go against his own teaching and contradict himself, and they're trying to trick him, and then uh, none of this seems to work, and then one day something happens. This was the, the, the final straw as far as the religious leaders were concerned. In fact, if you read about it, we're going to read it this morning. It's the last thing that happened, the last miracle happened before this plan went into place to crucify Jesus. And it was a pretty big one. Jesus raised a man from the dead, a man by the name of Lazarus. And this caused a bit of a stir. Lazarus was a very important person in this place called Bethany. So people knew him. People had been to his funeral. And here he is walking around. I mean, he didn't just die and come back to life. They buried him. He'd been in this tomb a couple of days and Jesus comes and and raises him from the dead. And listen to how John, um, who who tells the story, listen to how he describes it. He says in John 12, 17 to 18, he says, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead. And they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him because they'd heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. And in that moment, their true intentions kind of come to fruition, don't they? You realize that they don't care about his theology. They don't care about trying to make sure he's truly teaching the law of Moses or or is true to what he says. Here's the key of the problem they have. They said, look, everyone has gone after him. They like him more than us. That's the problem. We don't like that they're following him and not following us. Do you want to know the crazy part about what John writes here? So John would have written this years later. John was an old man when he wrote this account of the life of Jesus. And at that point, that point years later, there would have been some religious leaders and some Pharisees who would have actually turned their lives around, would have actually decided to become followers of Jesus themselves. So some of what John is writing here is because he's got direct influence, he's got direct contact with people that were in these conversations. Some of those Pharisees probably sat with John and said, John, you wouldn't believe it. I can remember it like it was yesterday. We were sat there talking about the fact that he'd just risen, that Lazarus had just risen from the dead. And we were just dumbfounded. We were thinking, what can we do? This is out of control. We've tried everything we know how to do. We realized that that we couldn't stop this. And I feel like John kind of had to just chuckle as he was writing these verses thinking, little did you know. I wonder if John himself even realized this was just the beginning of something much bigger. At this point when John is writing these verses, thousands of people have become followers of Jesus. He recognizes that, you know, the people that followed Jesus back when this happened was small compared to now because now thousands of people are following him. But little did John know that 2,000 years later, billions of people would be following this man. That when those religious leaders, when they said, there's nothing we can do, look, everyone has gone after him, little did they know how many everyone would be in the years to come. So immediately after the story of Lazarus, Immediately after, as John writes this in John chapter 11, it's like the story of Lazarus ends, then the very next verse begins like this in verse 47 of John chapter 11. 
Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and they'll destroy both our temple and our nation. Now you need to know this morning just how significant verse 47 is. Verse 47 says that the leading priests, the Pharisees, and the high council, they were the Sadducees, decided to meet together. This is how significant this is. These three groups of people, they never met together. They were like enemies of each other. They differed theologically on what they believed about God and about things like the resurrection, that kind of thing. They differed systematically on how they felt they should deal with the Romans. Some felt they should just put up with them. Others felt they should, should overthrow them. But these were groups of people coming together to discuss the problem they called Jesus who never saw eye to eye. This was the Democrats and the Republicans and Congress and Senate and the Supreme Court all coming together to agree. This was CNN and Fox News, both coming together. This was Cardinals fans and Cubs fans. We're like, we've got to come together and figure this out. This was people who own cats and people who own dogs. They're like, okay, let's put things aside for now. We've got to figure this out. This was country music fans and fans of every other type of music there is. <laughs> All right, now I'm getting carried away. That would never happen. Um, <laughs> But this is how significant this moment is. What we're about to read, okay, is a conversation, a, a meeting that took place amongst people that didn't normally see eye to eye. But every one of them was scared. Every one of them was pushing back, was resisting, because none of them wanted to really admit that Jesus was who he said he was. Because if they were to do that, there would be changes needed to take place in their lives. This is where it starts to tug on my heart a little bit. Because when we're really willing to admit, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life, then it, it causes some change to take place in my life. And, and I tend to resist that. It's hard to surrender to that. You see, I think in their heart of hearts, deep down, I think some of them knew that there was something to this. I think some of them really did actually believe that Jesus was teaching the word of God and that he could well be the Messiah. But to admit that, to surrender to that, it would cost them something. For these particular religious leaders, it would cost their power, their popularity, their wealth. That's what the temple represented to them. They knew it was going to cost them something, and that cost was too high. Because think about it. If you think about it this morning, if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, if you're here considering becoming a follower of Jesus, the truth is there is a cost. Some of you guys, I think, are here this morning because your wives and your kids started coming to Connect and they were coming home and enjoying it and they said, hey, hey, you should come and check out Connect Church. And you're like, okay, you know, for the family. And, and there was a cost. You had to give up some time on a Sunday morning, that relaxing newspaper coffee morning, and now you're here. You're like, okay, I can do that. That's just kind of an hour every week. But, but then as you start to, to come on a more regular basis, you hear of other costs. We take an offering. You think, whoa, there's a, there's a financial cost. Last week, we talked about our mission here is to serve. And, and we said, hey, we want to get you plugged in. We want to have you serve somewhere here at Connects. And if you weren't here, there were cards still on your seat because I know some of you just were definitely going to sign up to serve somewhere and forgot. So we put them out this week again for those of you who forgot. But uh, you're like, man, there's a cost there as well. 
And the truth is that as we grow in our relationship with God, then sometimes this tension comes because it's going to cost us a little bit more. Maybe you're here this morning, you're a student. Maybe you're part of Connect Youth. And there's a cost of being a follower of Jesus in high school, isn't there? There's a cost of following Jesus because not all your friends, not everyone is following Jesus. Maybe Justin's talked to you about the idea of, of dating. And you know, when you're looking for a, a partner, you should look for somebody who's also a follower of Jesus. You're like, seriously? Have you seen people that follow Jesus? They're not that cute. <laughs> Just kidding, you're all gorgeous. <laughs> but there's a cost. All my friends are doing this, and all my friends are dating around. And, and, and we, we hear this challenge that why not wait? Why not choose to be single until you find someone who has the same values and the same drive? And it doesn't have to be high school. You could be any age. But there's a cost. It will be so easy just to just jump in this relationship. I know it's not great, and I know they don't believe in Jesus like I do, and I know it's not an ideal, but I'm going to do it anyway. And because there's a cost to waiting for the right person. In every step of our lives, there's a cost to being a follower of Jesus. And these religious leaders realized, we're going to have to do something about this. So listen to what Caiaphas says in John chapter 11. It says that Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time, he says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Here's the plan, guys. For the sake of the nation, I know this is going to sound hard, but I'm, I'm thinking about the nation here. I'm thinking about us and, and all the Jewish people. It's probably better that we kill Jesus for everyone else's. I mean, not, not us, you know. I mean, obviously, it's not about us. It's about the people that we care so deeply about. For them, it's better that one man die than that whole nation dies. And Caiaphas starts to sell this, this idea that really, I think, wasn't true to his heart. He was, he was masking it in the idea that he cared about the people. But the truth is, as he says, guys, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's for the people. If we get rid of this one guy, we'll be better off. But I think he and the other religious leaders knew that this was self-preservation. They were going to have to do something about this Jesus who had so many crowds of people following him. The next verse, verse 51, it says, He did not say this on his own as high priest. At that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. Don't forget, John is writing this years later. He's, he's remembering, recollecting the events of that time. He may have been smiling, thinking, you know what? This, this wasn't their plan. This was part of God's plan. God was in this. Because as he writes the next verse, I think he had to be kind of smiling because he knew what he'd just written in the chapter before. In John eleven fifty three, 53, he says this, So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So from that day on, Caiaphas and the religious leaders and the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. But just one chapter before, John had written these words. He'd quoted Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verse 17. He says, the Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. Did you hear that? No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it back up again. For that's what my Father has commanded. Jesus is saying no one can take my life. Not Caiaphas, not the religious leaders, not the Roman emperors. No one instead 
I will choose the time. I will voluntarily give my life up because that is what the Father has commanded. You see, I think when we resist God, when we push back on God, it's because we think we have full control. We think, you know what? I'm in control here. I, I've got this. I, I, I'm not going to... Um, and we go against the creator of the universe. It's a little bit like this. Parents, have you ever had the situation where your kids tell you what they're going to do? Has that ever happened? I'm sure it hasn't. You've got great kids here this morning, I'm sure. But, um, but every now and again, um, this happens in our house. In fact, just yesterday... Just yesterday, Case had to run somewhere, so I was going to take uh, Emma and Will, and we were going to run some errands. And uh, as I'm talking about this, I can hear Emma in the background. So I was on the phone with Casey. I can hear him in the background again. I'm not going. Yeah, I, don't, I don't want to run errands. I'm not going. <laughs> and I can hear Casey again. Emma, you are going. Dad's got to run errands, and you're going with him. She's like, I'm not. I'm not going. <laughs> and do you know what? I actually think she really believed that this was going to happen. <laughs> I really think that she spoke with such authority, no, I am not going. That she deep down in her little nine-year-old body thought, no, I, I've got some control here. Do you know what we did yesterday? We ran some errands. <laughs> That's right. She went. And a little teachable moment for um, Emma Kate. We were uh, sat in Chick-fil-A for lunch, sipping on a milkshake. I said, hey, aren't you glad you came? She's like, yeah. <laughs> So it worked out pretty good. But, but I, I, I think about that little silly illustration there. I think sometimes we're kind of resisting God going, no, I'm not going. I'm not doing that. And, and in God's eyes, in Father God's eyes, who loves us so much, he sees what I see in my nine-year-old daughter, just this, this defiance and me realizing, you know, you don't have the control you think you have. And even if you do, trust me, there's a milkshake coming <laughs> God loves us so much, and we push back and we resist, but he's got our best interests at heart. I wonder, as John's writing this, if he was just looking at the words he's writing, thinking how futile Caiaphas felt he was when he sat there and said, we're going to start plotting to take the life of Jesus. But it wasn't that simple. It required him going to the Roman emperor. The Romans didn't get involved in Jewish law, so the Romans couldn't execute somebody just because they disobeyed a Jewish commandment. They wouldn't do that. So Caiaphas had to convince the Romans of the time that, that this man needed to be killed. So he convinced them that not only was he breaking Jewish laws, but by claiming to be the Messiah, by claiming to be a king in the line of David, that he was committing a crime that was called back then sedition, which was a threat, you know, an overthrow. I'm going to overthrow the emperor. We're going to... And based on that alone, he managed to convince the Romans to find Jesus guilty, ultimately securing the death of Jesus. Now, do you want to know what's the saddest part of this story? Caiaphas, as the high priest, guarding over the temple, would have had in that temple some of the oldest tablets and documents and uh, manuscripts available of the law of Moses. He would have access to, to tablets and scrolls that, that would have listed the Ten Commandments that would have said, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit murder. Part of his job as high priest was to guard that law. And yet he was pushing forward an act to break that law in murdering the Son of God. How could he do that? I think it's because our capacity for evil and our capacity for sin, going against God's ways, is extraordinary when we're trying to preserve something in the place of God. 
Caiaphas knew that if he didn't do something, he could lose that power, that wealth, that influence. He did everything he could to resist God because he didn't want to lose that. And do you want to hear another sad part of this story? It wasn't very long after the death and resurrection of Jesus that Titus and another group of Romans came in and they overthrew Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple and Caiaphas lost everything that he fought so hardly to hold on to. He resisted God. He pushed back. He tried so hard to, he even manipulated the death of Jesus because he didn't want to surrender and give up what he felt was so valuable. And still in the end, he lost it anyway. And now Caiaphas is just a footnote in the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, a man whose story is being told throughout the world for thousands of years. As I was studying for this, I I discovered that just recently, within the last few years, they've actually discovered the, the burial, the casket of Caiaphas. They were digging for a water park in Israel, of all things. They were building a water park there in Israel, and they came across this casket, and when they examined it, they discovered that it was inscribed that this was Caiaphas's casket, that his bones were still inside. So just recently, he's, he's back in the news. They're talking about it again, but for 2,000 years, he was just uh, one of the bad boys of Easter in this story. And I think if we could talk to Caiaphas today, do you know what he'd say? He'd say, what's a water park? He might say that, but I think what he'd really say, I do think that was unique that that's how they found as they were digging for a water park. But um, I think he'd say, I messed up. I messed up. I tried to hold on. I was, I was resisting God. I was pushing back for what I, I felt was valuable. And in the end, I lost it anyway. In my heart of hearts, I did wonder if Jesus really was who he said he was when he spoke with such authority. I couldn't deny the fact that there was something about this man, but it scared me the cost of admitting that. I loved all this way too much, and I wasn't ready to just give it up for this guy. But I wish I had, because in the end, I lost it all. Here's the thing. If we're honest here this morning, I think there's a little bit of Caiaphas in all of us. It's that pressure, isn't it, to preserve at all costs what we've built, what we consider a value, what we want in our lives. It's a behavior that deep down we know isn't right. It's a relationship that we know isn't healthy. It's an area of our life that we just don't want to give up, even though we know it's harming our family, it's harming our friends, maybe even harming us. And I understand. I understand why we as as followers of Jesus, we often resist the God we say we trust. I get it. I understand it because surrender is terrifying, isn't it? To, To give Jesus full control, say, Jesus, come into my life and do what you will. Take away what doesn't need to be there, put in what does. That's a scary thought to give him that kind of control in our lives. But this morning, Caiaphas would want to remind us that while saying yes to God will cost you something, saying no could cost you more. Resisting, saying no, it could end up costing you more. That's the lesson from the life of Caiaphas, one of the bad boys of Easter. Let's pray. Father, the truth is that As we look back on this story of the man that 
kind of led the charge to crucify Jesus. It's very easy to cast him as the villain. It's very easy to look back with contempt and anger that this man would behave that way and he would concoct these charges and Jesus was such a good man doing good things and healing people and teaching peace and love and this man comes in just at the threat of his own empire decides to have Jesus crucified and we wanna, we wanna hate that guy. We wanna be mad at that guy for doing what he did but the truth is, Lord, that as we examine him a little bit more and we examine his motives a little bit more, the truth is, God, it kind of shines a little bit of a light into our hearts. And this morning, we see a little bit of Caiaphas in all of us. Help us to learn from him, the man who fought so hard to hold on to something that he ended up losing anyway. God, some of us are resisting you this morning in certain areas of our life. We're pushing back. We're afraid of surrendering. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust the God, the Father who loves us so much, who wants to give us good things in our lives. Help us to trust you to surrender and to not resist. Help us learn from these bad boys of Easter over the next few weeks. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.